Well, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. And you know, those of you who have been in our church, you know that I'm, I've been steering toward what they call in theology, eschatology, uh, the teaching on the end times or the end days. And it is a, an important part of the Bible throughout the Old and New Testament. Uh, there, there is a, uh, the anticipation of Jesus' return and the subject of the rapture, though that phrase is not in the Bible, there's, there's information about the catching up or the gathering up. And I keep moving toward it. I've been studying profusely, and uh, I'm almost there. I'm doing, but this is pre-rapture teaching. And uh, actually, I'm getting closer than I've ever been. First Thessalonians 4 uh, is, uh, it describes in detail in the last part, 13 through 18, uh, uh, some real information about those who have died in Christ and what we can uh, hold as comfort and consolation, and then also the anticipation of and the inevitability of Jesus coming back, uh, and the subject of the rapture. Now, I've been studying those who believe it, those who don't, and uh, you know, I have to study to show myself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, handling accurately, rightly dividing the Word of God. So. It says in James chapter 3, let not many of you be teachers, brethren, because a teacher incurs a stricter judgment. So when I first anticipated a call into ministry, I was pretty hesitant or reticent about it because I wasn't just lunging into it because I thought to have, to have the responsibility to speak God's word is a big responsibility. And so I want to make sure I'm not playing into the um, winds of doctrine and, and, and all this conjecture, I, I want to make sure what we land on uh, is biblically sound and judging Scripture with Scripture, making sure it honors Jesus, make sure we're not making it say something it didn't originally say in the first place, and in following carefully the rules of Bible interpretation. So with that in mind, I want to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to read something to you that's kind of funny. The author will remain anonymous, but somebody interesting and credible. And in the foreword of, of his book on this subject, uh, he said, Having been born in 1902, I, I have now, by now, the year 1977, which is when this book was written, had time to witness the coming and going of quite a few prophetical students who, one by one, have made boisterous claims regarding the exact time of the rapture, exactly who the Antichrist was, and exactly what the mark of the beast would be. Uh, some terrified us with booklets saying, quote, keep this until 1927 and watch, unquote. We did, and nothing happened. Others depressed us by trying to prove that going through a severe tribulation would cleanse us and purify us instead of the blood of Jesus. Uh, one minister for whom I conducted a revival service in the 1920s listened to my sermon on the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast one night, then left the church sick and went home to bed. When I knocked at the door of the parsonage he, I, and to ask about him, his wife met me with, how could you do that to him? Only last Sunday, he told the people that the Mark of the Beast was the face on the American dime, which I guess was Mercury at the time, and had them march up in the front to see one. Now you come along and tell them that isn't the, the, uh, the mark at all. 
So she was upset that uh, he messed that up for the, that minister. So that it's, I, I have lived through strong announcements of various dictators being the Antichrist. He said Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, and others. In the days of Mussolini, one preacher became so convinced that he was the Antichrist that he, the, the pastor himself, wrote a book about it. But before the book could become a bestseller, Mussolini was dead. Here's the quote. My God, the preacher said, they've killed my Antichrist and I've just got 5,000 copies of my book printed. <laughs> with, <laughs> with all of this and more going on in the prophetical field during my lifetime, I think that my reasons for writing this book the rapture and the second coming of Christ are obvious, and I trust understandable. So in light of that, and you know, through my experience with uh, my uh, time in, spent in the Lord, I've seen those things. I've seen um, uh, irresponsibility come to the church body. And, um, you know, where I'm at as a pastor, it, it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, we are to occupy till he comes. So if you want to know, I'm con I am confident Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to a glorious church without spot or blemish. And I'm going to talk to you about the rapture, and I'm going to, we're going to look at it. And we're going to talk about the different viewpoints that are held in the body of Christ and within Christendom. And I'm going to talk to you about where we land on the doctrinal distinctives here. But right now, I just feel like this is a season of preparation. Right now, I feel like this is occupy till he comes. And that we, we need to have our lamps trimmed and burning. We need to be ready with fresh oil. You know, we're in an oil crisis, you know, and, and the gas prices are up. And, but for the church, uh, we must not have an oil crisis. We've got to keep our lamps filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, right? And occupy until he comes. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is powerful, and I'm going to read the, it, the, that chapter in its entirety to you. So if you didn't bring your Bible, we'll put it up on the screen, but I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible, and my goal is to it, it stir you, similarly to when Jeremiah spoke to those in exile uh, in, the, in the deportation, when the Babylon went in and, and ransacked Israel and took all of their uh, fine people and put them in bondage for 70 years. And Jeremiah prophesied, and he said, don't listen to the false prophets. It's not going to be a quick thing. It's going to be 70 years. But I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. But he says something really kind of amazing, similar to Occupy Till He Comes. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. That is a statement to the Old Testament, what Jesus bumps up in New Testament context, that we're to be the light of the world. We're to be the salt of the earth. We're to go out and be rich in good works. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They'll pray and his ears are inclined to the prayer of the upright. God hears and he answers prayer. We'll give, we'll serve, we'll show up. 
will be strident and determined with the strength that God supplies. Occupy till I come. And, uh, I, you know, I heard a minister say, Jesus is coming back in a couple of years. Kids, quit school. You know, that one guy even said, you can just run up your, your credit card, let the Antichrist pay for it. Those are, listen, it's funny now, but those are, they literally meant that. And that is a theology of irresponsibility. And what God wants us to do is live holy, H-O-L-Y, as though he's coming back any minute because no one knows the hour of the day. But also plan wisely because the responsibility on each one of us, even those of you who are single, is to leave a good inheritance for the children's children. So even if you don't have literal physical children, maybe you've been single all your life, you still are birthing spiritual babies in the new birth and birthing prayer uh, uh, impact and, and growth. And, and so we live as if he's coming back in a millisecond. We prepare as if he might not be coming back for 100 or plus years. So we're therefore occupying until he comes. Finally then, brethren. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. And I love this. It says, finally then, brethren. Wait a minute. If I look on my Bible, there's a whole chapter after that. So whenever a pastor says, in conclusion, it, it, it means nothing. But anyway, here, here it is right here. Finally then, brethren. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. This is Paul the Apostle speaking to this amazing group of people in Thessalonica. Now it's called Thessaloniki. It's a port city in Greece off the Mediterranean. And it's actually quite a, the metropolitan area is very populated and it is still a thriving environment. And I read this and I see that this church had awakened in their particular time frame when the Bible was written, and the word of the Lord powerfully went forth from them. These guys demonstrated some maturity. They demonstrated some real follow-through. And this chapter talks about this as it leads up to talking about the catching up or the gathering up of the saints. It says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord, this is Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians and to us, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Excellence is the root word. Excel is at the, the root of excellence. Excellence is a core value of the culture of the kingdom. We're to show forth, it says in 1 Peter, his excellencies. Everybody say excellent. See, that's not perfectionistic, it's excellent. Perfectionistic is unattainable, but excellence, we're to excel. We're to, you know, I think, for example, in pop music, the Beatles got together when they were kids. Paul listened to his dad's 40s uh, uh, big band records. Then came the rhythm and blues of America. These young guys got inspired by Little Richard and... St. Louis and uh, Chuck, Barry, and um, who Patsy preached to, and I talked to little Richard about the Lord. We had an amazing talk. That's amazing. I've got a lot of stories to tell, preaching to Ray Charles. Uh, but yet, and Jerry Lee Lewis just passed, and I was told by one of his family members he rededicated his life to the Lord, and just a little, right on time, right on time. He's present with the Lord, thank God. All the rugged life and ends up being the mercy of the 
cleansing of the blood of Jesus, right? But the Beatles practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And I read where Paul McCartney talked about they got their 10,000 hours when they went to Hamburg, Germany and played in those clubs. We went into the Cavern Club in Liverpool and just thought about the four young lads that changed the world, you know, in terms of music, they did, for good or bad, however you feel, but they impacted the whole tone of things. And practice makes perfect. And so Paul is telling the Thessalonians, and for that matter, here we are, three years through a pandemic, in a season that we never have been through in our lifespan, uh, and yet confident that God has a plan, that God has, is the author and the finisher of our faith, and that he has downloaded and embedded treasured gifts into each one of us as individuals, that's biblical, and that we constitute the body of Christ generally, the Thessalonians identified as a local church body, I identify here at St. Louis Family Church, this is where God's planted me, this is my spiritual community, and it's Ephesians 4.16, according to the proper working of each individual part that's going to cause the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love. We have a part to play. We have a role to play. And, and, and we, just, we just yield and look to the Lord and trust him. And then, you know, the Beatles practiced and practiced and practiced. But I remember when they were doing the... Uh, their last album and their last concert on the roof, uh, George Harrison said, man, it's taken me days to get my chops back. We've gotten rusty. And John, who had, was, you know, was just very skilled with guitar and singing, he, he said it just took time for us to come back together. When we were in the band flowing, it was just really just second nature to us, but we, we've got to practice. Uh, I have a, a friend who's the music director for Paul McCartney now, who used to be the music director for Etta James before, and he told me that he goes into practice in London for two weeks, sometimes for two solid weeks, with the, the guy, and they've played this music for years together. In fact, this new, this new band around Paul McCartney has been together with him longer than he was with the Wings or the Beatles. So, and, and uh, you know, the David Goldstein, who used to live here, told me he remembers when Abraham Laboriel Jr. announced he was going to go learn drum lessons. Now he's the drummer for Paul McCartney. His dad is Abraham Sr., who famously plays bass guitar and loves Jesus. I watched him in, a, in the, the baked potato out in California, praying in tongues, worshiping God, dancing in a bar under the anointing. I thought, oh, I love this. His wife, he's, his wife is a medical doctor whose specialty is helping infants with uh, infant alcohol syndrome. And so, you know, he has this sonic, his gift is so unique and he's like a minstrel in the kingdom of God. He's so anointed. I'd love to have him back. He fought and beat cancer recently and I'm really thankful for that. He's so proud of his wife who says she really does the... She really does the work, you know, helping little babies out of that dilemma. Uh, but he's to that point. He sees that, you know, there, there's variety. I love the church. People have talked about diversity and all that stuff. Look no further than the church. There are no two of us alike. Look at this church. It's an eclectic mix. 
with all ages, both genders, many ethnicities. And it's just like, just keep a light hand on that. It's like, let's just stay busy looking to Jesus and not trying to figure out and, and manipulate and massage everything. Let's just be obedient to what God's called us to do. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that, you re- what, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel in it. You keep, you keep pressing on. You keep, you keep at it. Exodus 18.20, Jethro was Moses' father-in-law, and Moses was not delegating properly, and he was trying to, get too, he was, he was trying to do too much himself. And Jethro exhorted him and said, the thing you're doing is not good. He said, you got to delegate and you got to find people that God has appointed, not just randomly just give people opportunities, but just make sure it's God. And then he said, teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to go, walk, and the work they are to do. Make, this is what Moses, essentially, it was boiled down. He says, teach them the statutes and the laws and make them know, uh, make known to them the way in which they are to walk, the way in which they are to walk, walk in love, walk by faith, walk with consistency, don't grow weary in well-doing, press on toward the goal of the prize of the high calling of God, and the work they are to do. I think they're customized responsibilities for each individual in the kingdom. I think they're customized responsibilities for each local church. And uh, God has, if we'll listen to him, uh, uh, ideas for us that if we'll line up with him and follow the witness and leadership of the Holy Spirit, staying biblical, we'll get biblical results. And I'll, we'll see greater results, great fruit. He says, for you know that what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For th- this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. He's telling the, the former pagans, former Gentiles, that had no understanding of who God is, the polytheistic, Greco Roman, Hellenistic world, if you study history, which was replete with binge eating, uh, sensuality, uh, all manner of uh, loving pleasure, hedonistic. And so he's saying to them, hey guys, you, you, you gotta, your bodies now are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you gotta you submit them to God and, you, and abstain from sexual immorality and, and really dial in and really line up. And, and he says, not in, he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, which is our body, in sanctification and honor. So this speaks of the fruit, ninth fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And um, so he's saying, really, you know, dial in and submit to God and present your body as a living sacrifice and not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, we, we get convicted about that, and our world is so sexualized, but it was then, too. I would say they had this basic same high form of crazy that we're now seeing 
since the sexual revolution of the 60s and the time span that we're in right now. Um, uh, the, the, the wisdom from below is earthly, sensual, and demonic. There's a lot of impulse, and, there, there, and, and he's saying, hey, listen, these things God designed, you got to get them back in order. You know, this is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman in marriage, in the context of marriage. Don't slip out of this. He's got really specific framework here that we just have to follow. Uh, no matter what's popularized or what opinion other people have, you've got to just go right with what the Word says, and this is what it says. I saw a gentleman who helps men uh, in this area of, of uh, sex and lust and so forth, and he said that, uh, you, you know, on the, he suggested to all the brothers, uh, take your phone, find a, a lady to put a blocker on your phone from uh, uh, illicit materials. And just put a block on it. Put a block on your television. Um, that way then, it, you know, you're, you're not get, making provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Right? right? And it, it's like, uh, it, it's, it's, either, it's easier to, uh, what is it, to avoid uh, than get in it and be right in the proximity of it and then have to overcome it. If you're in the electric, you submit to the electromagnetic current of it. Uh, you know, you fill your refrigerator with Breyer's ice cream, uh, you will want to eat it, right? And, uh, you know, the reason I don't drink alcohol anymore is because I was so stupid in high school, I did a lifetime of it before I turned 21. And I just got done with it because of how it blurred my judgment. I thought, I need all the help I could get. I'm coming into it with, for, with issues anyway. I don't need to add to the problem. That's just, just, that's just me. So, you, you know, so you can... I just don't need to be, you don't need me to get up and drunk preach. <laughs> you know, right? So, uh, right? I've never said that in 42 years of pastoring. Like, like, like drunk texting. Yeah, that, she's got some history. There's some stories from, yeah. But we'll, we'll just leave it with this. Hallelujah. And this is helpful because this is pre-revival stuff. This is check up from the neck up. This is clean it up kind of stuff to, you know. Um, in fact, if you want to take some notes, I've got eight quick points for you. Number one, we occupy till he comes. Number one, live holy for God. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Live holy completely for God. God, I want to love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. And Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and he's saying, guys, keep your body under. You know how convicted you get when you yield to these sin patterns. It's terrible on your conscience. And he's saying, just you know, walk in sanctification. Possess your vessel, your, your earthly vessel, your body, with sanctification and honor and not in lustful passion. So he's really urging these Thessalonians who are being really fruitful, really guard in this particular area. Paul says to the Ephesians something even different in Ephesians 4.17. This is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, but he was having to help the Ephesians with the pride of life. And he said, so I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So there's a quasi-intellectualism that I've seen try to get on believers. I've seen believers that were sincere about the Lord, 
and free in terms of the things of the Spirit. They enjoyed the, the new birth and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and the, they were hungry for the gifts of the Spirit. And then they got into intellectualism, quasi-cerebral uh, intellectualism. And this is what, and, and, and by the way, I'm not anti-intellectual. My wife and I both went to college. We both got our degrees. We urged our kids to get degrees. I think we should be life learners. And I am, I, I am, I am adamant about learning. I'm a reader. I'm, I'm listening. I want to learn. I want to grow. But I also don't want to lean on my own understanding. I want to I do everything I can with my three-pound brain because it needs all the help it can get. And yet, I'm not going to get into quasi-intellectualism. Reinhard Bonnke talked to me about how he was hopeful in one person's case, but he said they went off into intellectualism. He was so upset about it because he saw the man's potential. And it was like, oh. And so he's telling the Ephesian church not to, you know, like what it says in Corinthians, that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Let everything you do be done in love, Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians 16, I think, what is it, 19 or something? And so there's, there's all of that. So here's, here's checkup from the neck up, pre-Jesus pre coming, uh, pre-revival information. And, and so he says, um, don't yield to these things. He told the Ephesians, don't yield to that stuff. You know, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It says later on in Ephesians chapter 4. Here it says, uh, and, and that no man transgress, it says in verse 6, and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So he's, he's saying, guys, you know, straighten up. You know, these are, these are, uh, things to avoid, things to straighten out. And he says in verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. So everybody say, live holy for God. The next one is live holy for God, H-O-L-Y. God's called us to pursue that. Be holy, for I am holy. He wants us to just continually receive the cleansing and the refreshing and the abundance of the presence of God in our lives and every day point our feet in this direction. Every day submit. Every day be quick to repent, be yielded to God, be submitted to God. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Who's glad for that? We repent of a bad attitude. We repent of lustful thinking. We repent of leaning on our own understanding. We stay repentant of bitterness and being, you know, being angry. Ang be angry, but sin not. So we repent of that. Uh, number three, walk by faith instead of by sight, instead of by sensory input. We're trusting God. We're walking in confidence in the faithfulness of God. And we have a measure of faith. Faith comes by hearing the word. We can do this because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Base, a base, a bound. We can navigate through seasons. God, we can anticipate the times. We can understand what God's saying. We can be on track with it. And then number four, maintain courage. Maintain courage. You know, this week we were praying uh, with a, a, a mom in the church, and I, I lifted up one of her kids by name. Uh, that kid and her husband and kids, they got in a new home that she's not completely used to, and at about 1130, uh, stumbled down the steps, broke her big toe on her right foot, um, 
put a big dent in the drywall uh, and just kind of got really banged up. And her husband got really upset. He, he said he suffered more than she did, and she agreed. And then, uh, then but she told him, I've got to be at church tomorrow, and I've got to be at the harvest party. So she was at the last service. You can't really tell anything happened to her. She has one of those little feet boot things to fix your foot, but she's just kind of, you know, and, and what did she do? Uh, she, she got back up on the horse that kicked her off. You know, when I got lost at sea in New Zealand, spearfishing, uh, I, I got pulled out into the open sea. Nobody knew where I was. It was very scary. I knew I was facing death. I got farther and farther away from any hope and then, lo and behold, I prayed, and miraculously, Captain Pete had the wherewithal. I said, God, you're going to have to give this captain wisdom. I'm asking you, James 1.5, to give him wisdom. I had, I had enough sense not to panic, because I knew if I panicked, I wasn't gonna, it, wasn't, it was going to decrease my potential to survive. Everybody say, don't panic. Don't panic. What did Churchill say? Be calm and carry on during the war. And... Uh, so I decided I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to misuse my energies to worry. I'm not going to get all nervous and let the, all my adrenal glands flip out. And, then I, and in fact, uh, my, my body was changing while I was out there. And my extremities, my, my, my system, my brain was telling my system to protect my vital organs from the cold and the elements and the condition I was in. And I was having a hard time. I tried to tie knots with the rope to put buoys under my arms because I had uh, buoys for the spearfishing for the large fish we were going to shoot. And I thought, I better get these under my arms so that I don't have to paddle all the time, even though I had a wetsuit on and I didn't take my belt off and I didn't throw the gun, the, the uh, spear gun away. In case, you know, it, it, actually, the reason I didn't is because it belonged to somebody else. It was like a $1,400 gun. I didn't want to have to buy him a new one. So it's a very stupid reason, you know. And I didn't throw off my belt uh, thinking if I throw off my belt, I might be able to get to the rocks and hold on and they would find me there. Um, a guy had gotten lost in New Zealand a little while before that, and he took his belt off and he took his boots off. He started losing his mind because you, you, your thinking gets affected. He was an intelligent man, but he started, he was athletic, but he started kind of doing stupid stuff. And there was deterioration on his hands from the salt water. He was out there for four days. So I actually, I thought, I don't know, because I guess I read the book of Jonah. I thought, I might, I'm going to have to prepare to be out here for three days and three nights, like Jonah in the belly of the fish, or Jesus in the heart of the earth. I don't know why I picked that. And I decided, okay, I'm going to have to get ready and, and that's why I'm not excitedly up here telling you Jesus is coming back in 10 minutes. Because you just heard what I read in that introduction of the man's book from 1977. Well, a few years after that, a number of people said Jesus is coming back in 1980. And it brought a lot of disappointment, it brought heightened expectation and then a lot of letdown and disappointment. No one knows the hour of the day. So I don't think it's very smart. I just got to pile of papers from somebody in, in, in Georgia somewhere who I don't even know telling me all the details of exactly when Jesus is coming back. And it's like I looked at it. I, I just measured it. I thought, I don't know who you are. You didn't say why you're sending this to me. Boink. Because I, I saw people do this over and over again. Now, on the other hand, in the Bible, it says there's a cynical attitude that will come along that's just as bad. 
Where are the signs of his coming? And, and get apathetic. We must not get in that extreme, nor must we allow winds of doctrine and all this stuff to hit us. Basically, we look at these verses, and we, we hunker down to just trust that God's going to give us the wherewithal. He helped me. And I prayed, and Captain Pete aimed his boat straight out into the open sea, did full throttle, went out a mile and a half, straight out into the middle of the ink-black open sea, away from this island, 80 miles off the shore of the north of New Zealand, out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody was there at this point but this one boat, and he rode straight out and rode directly. He didn't zigzag, didn't use binoculars. He rode right up to me, and they called me, pulled me out of the water, and I got in the boat. I preached this every day for about four years in this church. So how many of you have heard this story? Well, it's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And in case you feel like you're in a ditch, and face you, in case you feel like you're forgotten or forsaken, my God delivered Jonah from the belly of the fish. He knew where he was, and he got him back on track. My God delivered me from that situation. And he brought me back. I didn't have any grandchildren then. Now I have five. And every time I hold my grandkids, I realize this is a grace. So when we came through the pandemic, I didn't get depressed. I got sad about what it was doing to people. I hate sickness. I hate the isolation. I hate what it did to our kids. I hate what it's done to our economy. I hate what it's done to the attitudes and the divisiveness of poor decision-making on the part of leadership in our country and how stupid many things have been uh, uh, finalized and the opportunistic manipulation of it like you do. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, so I'm not surprised. Caesars and those guys were evil. Uh, when they were in uh, exile in, in, in Babylon, you know, he said to them uh, in, in Jeremiah 29, 7, did I read this to the service? He said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. We're the light of the world. Did I say that in this church service? Yeah, so it's good to hear it again. So now let's get back to 1 Thessalonians. Did I finish my story about the boat or what I was trying to say? You need to consolidate your resources, not lose your cool. When they pulled me up on the boat, my friend looked at me and he said, I don't think you recognize the severity of your problem. I looked at him and I said, contraire, mon frere. I knew exactly how bad it was. I was in it. Because when they came up, I said, hey, guys. And they, they thought, you know, and, and I undid the bands on the spear, spear gun because you're not supposed to come back up on the, out of the water with a loaded spear gun. Oh, this is what I wanted to tell you. Everybody say the next day. The next day, I got my wetsuit back on, my weight belt and my spear gun and my mask and my snorkel and my fins, jumped in the water and shot the biggest fish I've ever caught in my life in basically the same spot where the current got me and pulled me out. I learned you just got to get back up. You know, there's a gentleman in here who hurt his hand doing woodwork, and he's already convalescing and doing woodwork with an extra note of caution and probably his wife supervising. (laughs) But we talked about it. It's like you can't just get intimidated and, you know, in pastoring, you get hurt, you get backstabbed, you people backstab you. It's like, what, are you going to quit? No, you, you, you don't quit. 
You have marriage and you're in romance and all of a sudden you have a fight. What, are you going to throw it away? No, you just, that, you're in it for the long haul. We're in it for the long haul. We don't give up on our kids. We don't give up on our society. Even these guys that were in exile, he says, you pray for the welfare. Like, like Daniel, go in there and make yourself in indispensable. Go in there and develop and learn and come in and where you can be resourceful and you can interpret dreams and you can pray the prayer of faith and you can provide counsel to these crazy heathen. Right? Oh, hallelujah. This is good stuff. All right, so there you go. So let's get back to this. I'm doing good. I've, got my, I've just got just the right amount of time. You guys listening? What verse did I end up in, Ephesians, in 1 Thessalonians 4? 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he's saying, please listen and don't reject this. Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to, to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So then somebody could say, well, then why are you teaching it to us? Why did the Beatles keep playing over and over again shows in Hamburg so that by the time they did get invited to Ed Sullivan's show in 1964, their skill set was as sharp as it could be? Why did God use David? Because David knew how to use that sling in practice to protect those little lambs and sheep and the shepherd's flock, but it translated, that natural thing translated into a supernatural opportunity. That's why the, these next verses are so powerful for us. Listen to what it says in here. It says, uh, verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, that's the love walk, brethren, to excel still more. God is really dealing with my wife and me about the love walk in very practical terms. And he's been visiting upon us and guiding us. And where I might have a weakness or a blind spot, she's helping me out and vice versa. And it's really been amazing, the instruction the Lord's given us. And it's just like this right here. Stay walking in the love walk. Don't get out of the love walk. Let everything you do be done in love and excel in it. It, because that's where the real glory is and where the real power is. You get in bitterness, you open a door to the devil, it's going gonna, it's gonna to squelch your effectiveness exponentially. And God wants us to be really efficient in these upcoming days. And make it your ambition. Look, at this is the verse I want you to read. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Lead a quiet life, Attend to your own business, work with your own hands. I'm, I'm, my personality tends toward this. I'm a kind of a private guy. When they did a personality test on me, I was right in between an extrovert and an introvert. And uh, I'm right in the middle. You know, it's like I thrive on solitude and time alone with the Lord, but I also thrive on being with people. But in, in order to be effective with people, I need to go be alone. Uh, and then, and, and I tend to be very private and reserved. And I, and, and I think there's a value as an ambition. I just want to lead a simple, quiet life, knowing that God will take it and use it anyway. And, and uh, attend to your own business. Mind your manners. Don't be a busybody. Attend to your own business. To your own self be true. And work with your own hands. There's an anointing on you. Whatever you put your hand to will prosper. You doctors, you're anointed to bring health and, and well-being to others. You teachers, you're anointed 
to train up the next generation. You factory workers, you're anointed to create things. Homeowners, you're anointed, and homemakers, to raise up and train your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Church members, we are anointed to be the body of Christ. We're empowered to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, and so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So we live holy for God, number one. We live holy, H-O-L-Y, for God, number two. Three, we walk by faith. Four, maintain courage. It, it, they asked me on the boat, are you going to ever get back in the water? I said, absolutely. I wasn't being stupid. I didn't get caught in a current the next time. The first time, my two friends got so excited, the Californians, they swam off into one direction. And I thought, well, we've got these spears. You're supposed to have a buddy system, but also with these spears, you're not supposed to be, you, there's an etiquette with a spear. You don't want to aim a, a weapon toward somebody. So it was counterintuitive. So it's like, how, how close do I stay to them, but how far should I be from them? So they went off over that way. So I just took a turn and uh, I was a more of a novice and I went between these two giant rocks and it shot me through like the agitation cycle on the washing machine. And I was looking underwater and all the fish were sideways surrounded by bubbles. I thought, wow, they're having a hard time swimming. And then I realized, and they're the fish. They, they're, they're, this is their skill set, you know? They're, I'm a land, I'm from St. Louis. I'm walking, you know, I'm, I, and, and so I just paddled and paddled, paddled and paddled. You ever feel helpless? Paddled and it just kept going worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet God give the captain wisdom. And he went a mile and a half straight out in the open sea. And God's doing that for somebody in here today. Number five, do not be preoccupied by the world. Be not conformed to this world or, trans or, or, or molded by it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what's happening right now. This is a pivot point. We're reading these verses to get focused, to get ready. Eventually Jesus is coming back, but we need to occupy till he comes with a quiet life, attending to our own business, working with our own hands so that our behavior will be right, we'll be behaving properly toward outsiders, having a strategy, not being goofy or flaky, uh, not being overbearing or manipulative, and not being overly private and shy and putting our light in a bushel basket and under a bed, but just letting it shine, right? Number six, fear not. Listen to this, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, survey, how many of you believe Jesus died and rose again? A lot of theological places don't believe he rose again. I do. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's coming back coming back to a glorious church and there's going to be some amazing things that happen for this we say to you by the word of the lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be here's the phrase caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words number seven we must endeavor to win souls 
We must endeavor. He that is wise wins souls. We live holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y for God. Holy, H-O-L-Y for God. We walk by faith. We maintain courage. We don't become preoccupied by the world. Boy, nine days to the election. Such a demand on our thinking. But you know, you base your lives on the Judeo-Christian Bible and on the hero Israel, there is only one God. And follow what Jesus wants you to do. Vote by your God-shaped convictions, not by the manipulations of opinions, not by the vilification and the mudslinging strategies of man. Be led by the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage everybody to get prepared to go to the polling booth, even if you have to wait two and a half hours, and you go in there and you vote uh, a God-ordained, Jesus-shaped conscience, and the Lord will show you what to do. Lastly, rejoice in the Lord always, for your redemption is drawing nigh. All right, that's as close as I've gotten to the rapture. Let's all stand up on our feet. Come on. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.